So one of the ways I can tell that meditation is becoming more mainstream is there are many more cartoons about meditation these days. And I'm someone who likes humor and look for, for it wherever I can. And so I collect the ones on meditation, the good ones anyway. So here's one I saw a little while ago. If you know the television reality show, The Amazing Race, which I have never watched, but you can't help not know these kind of cultural things. Couples have to go journey over difficult terrain to go somewhere for some reason. It's a little mysterious to me, but apparently they do. Anyway, this scenario is a couple watching television, and the television's kind of blaring uh, these words. This week, on The Amazing Race to Enlightenment, can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Bob and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to the self? <laughs> Actually, you know, it's not if you're having a race to enlightenment. They're, they're your issues, really. And then another one, which is an old favorite. This has been around for a long time. Um, oh, his, the cartoonist name just when it got ga. Garmin? No. Not Garfield. <laughs> no. I refuse to read Garfield. What's his name? That? Oh, people will know it. Um, so this scenario is, it's always a gloomy zendo, right? If it's meditation, it doesn't look like this. It either looks like a yoga studio or a gloomy zendo. Um, and this is the gloomy zendo variation. There's two robed, as in heavily robed figures. So you can tell that it's freezing. They're bundled up. And one is younger and has this kind of disgruntled look on his face. And the older one, very grizzled kind of looking, is answering, obviously, a question that has just been posed. And the answer is, nothing happens next. This is it. (laughs) So my question to you here is, what's the it that this is? What are we doing here? And why, as Philip posed these questions the other night, and and all of this focus on the breath, what is its purpose? What what's what's we what are, what are we here for? So tonight, I want to talk about the art of meditation and right effort or right attitude towards our practice, because I learned so much about these two facets from doing concentration practice, from having this very simple object and finding out all the ways I could make that difficult. I think you're also becoming experts in that. And so to talk about it as an art, it's not a science. If there was just a list of do's and don'ts and we could just tick them off, we could go home. But it's more subtle than that. And I think we've said already, we're not here training to be good breathers. You already know how to breathe. We're not even actually wanting everyone to have a particular experience. You know, as we said early on, we don't call this a jhana retreat. It's not about, oh, get this experience and then you'll get your badge. You can go home and tell all your friends. Um, What we're doing here is training the mind and heart. And in Pali, in Buddhism, mind and heart are the same thing, citta. 
So when we say mind, we mean heart. When we say heart, we mean mind. There's, they're unified. There's not the dualism that we often have in our Western understanding. So we're training this mind-heart to learn how to deepen into relaxation, contentment, and well-being so we can then unify and collect the mind. And what really is important is how we get there is as important, if not more important, than where we get. The, the, the journey, this exploration of what it's actually like to have a sense of well-being, of contentment, of calmness. These are the important aspects of this training because learning how to do that, learning how to cultivate those qualities are skills that you can learn and that you can take home with you out of retreat and then bring to any other retreat that you attend, any other practice that you do. Whatever deep states, if you get any, or even momentary of concentration, even if they last for a while, they're conditioned, they're impermanent, they will not last. You can't hold on to them, you can't take them home with you. But these skills, this training, is something that we can really inhabit and embody and can be great service um, to us in our lives and our practice. So that's the most important thing that we're doing here. Learning how to do this, not where we get to. Where we get to is up to conditions, many of which are outside our control. But the learning how to do it, that we can keep coming back to. So we're using the breath in this case, and again, as we've mentioned, many other objects we could choose. I'll talk some about other ones tonight, but mainly here using the breath to develop this training. That's our simple object. I've used this quote already, but it's so um, pertinent. The Buddha said, I'm paraphrasing, the untrained mind is worse for you than your worst enemy, more difficult for you than your worst enemy, the trained mind more helpful than your best friend, best ally. So we're training this mind to be a helpful ally. And when the Buddha talks about this capacity, there's these beautiful descriptions of the mind. Concentrated, purified and cleansed, unblemished, free from impurities, malleable, wieldy, steady, and having gained imperturbability. I mainly quote that phrase just to get to say that word, imperturbability, I like it. But it points to something that's possible for us. That the mind, instead of being this frantic, haphazard, chaotic, shameless mess of kalesa, as it often seems, can actually be responsive and trainable. And this, for me, was a huge um, gift, benefit, in deepening in concentration. After many years of practice, I did about 10 years of mainly concentration practice. And seeing these qualities being developed in my own mind was really life-transforming for me. It was like reading a 2,600-year-old instruction manual that still was relevant, that still was useful, and still pointed to experiences I was having. And so learning to actually trust the mind and develop the mind and be able to use the mind 
very clearly and precisely in practice was huge. Instead of the mind being this nagging, judging, complaining voice, you know, your second grade teacher or whoever you've personified or inbuilt as that voice of the judge or the critic, the mind to be this responsive, trusted ally in practice, it's wonderful. And then, of course, as we've also said, we don't get concentrated for concentration's sake alone. It's in order to. It's in order to take this concentrated mind and turn it to insight, to clear seeing. The mind that's thus concentrated, whatever level we get to, and as we keep saying, it doesn't have to be jhana. There are many teachers and traditions that say jhana isn't necessary. But access concentration or neighborhood concentration, and it's called termed that because it's close to in the neighborhood of jhana, is more than enough to stabilize the mind to bring penetrating insight. And all of us can have a taste of that kind of mind, even here in this 10 days, when we can hold our object even for a moment or two. That's getting close to this kind of mind, when the hindrances are relatively at bay, the mind is steady on its object, we start to have a taste of access concentration and can certainly perhaps deepen in that even here. But we're using this tool or this technique, this object of the breath to do this training. And I'll be the first to admit, and perhaps you'll join me, in saying the breath is not inherently interesting right? Especially the thousands, thousands, that's a hard one, thousands breath. Because we can't say it. And what we see is we can't maintain enough stability on the breath, enough vitaka and vichara, this aiming and sustaining on the breath through sheer force of will. We can go so far, and many of you are trying as I speak, to use force of will to do that, but it ultimately will fail. It ultimately will crash. It's just the nature of will and effort. It's not sustainable, whatever we use that kind of will or effort to try to do. And especially around this rather ephemeral object of the breath, subtle object of the breath. So some shift has to happen in our relationship to the breath. And that's a lot of what I want to talk about tonight. What has to happen is we fall in love with the breath. The breath becomes our beloved. All of the poems of Rumi, I should have pulled some out for tonight, where he often talks about the beloved. And it's, you know, for him, God, the ineffable, um, the divine, you could substitute there the breath in all of those poems and have that kind of relationship. We have to prefer the simplicity of the breath to the complexity and the compelling nature of our thinking mind. This is the stark choice that we have in this practice. And so let's explore what it takes to do that. As I said before, why we do the practice is that the concentrated mind, when it turns to insight, can see more deeply. So we have that kind of incentive. What happens is the concentrated mind can stay 
more readily. So it's a feedback loop. Even as we're developing concentration, the Vitaka and Vicharas, the engines, they strengthen and stabilize. So we have more capacity. As we have more capacity, the concentration deepens. They get more steady. And then when we turn to insight, this stabilized, steady mind can be with objects that are more challenging, that are more varied, that are more changing like the rest of the six sense doors. But concentration and developing this capacity of the collected and unified mind has benefits in and of itself, even if we're not talking about using it to insight. And perhaps you've already got a taste of that. What the, one of the ways I see it is whatever our brain waves look like, you know, they're usually some kind of sine curve, that's what that is, wave, um, they smooth out a little. There's less agitation, less uh, reactivity through deepening this. And there's also more receptivity. We get more open, more connected. So all of these beautiful benefits through this training. So we're training the mind. And as I said, one of the shifts that has to happen is changing how we relate to the breath. This we can do somewhat through the... um, mental factor of perception. Perception is really important in the Buddha's teachings. It's one of what's called the five aggregates, and don't have time to go into them all here. Um, Form, feeling, as in Vedana, uh, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And the Buddha said, be mindful of these five because it's where you tend to Uh, identify and cling and therefore create suffering. And perception is one of these. We create a sense of self or identity through um, our perceptions. Often our perceptions are distorted. And a big part of practice is to bringing our perceptions more and more in line with reality, with the way things are. So the Buddha will talk about the perception of impermanence or the perception of emptiness clarifying our understanding so what we're perceiving is actually the truth of things. He also talks about kind of shifting or playing with perception, seeing the beautiful in the unbeautiful, and the unbeautiful in what we usually take to be beautiful. So challenging how we usually perceive things. We can use this kind of training in our relationship to the breath. If we have the attitude conscious or unconscious, that the breath is boring, we will never be able to rest the attention on it long enough to actually deepen in concentration. We'll get bored. It's just inevitable. If the breath is boring, we'll get bored. I learned a lot about this um, working with perception from a a teacher, an English monk called Ajahn Brahmawangso comes from the Ajahn Chah lineage, now lives in Perth, Western Australia. And most of his own practice and certainly his teaching are all about jhana and concentration. So he talks about it a lot and he tells a story of his uh, early years of practice as a monk. And, you know, so he ordained to be a monk. There's already a lot of, some vaguer, a lot of urgency, a lot of um, uh, effort involved in that, a lot of renunciation, of course, Um, And he really 
he wanted it, right? He was Nibbana or bust kind of guy. And he read the text, he saw it, because Ajahn Chah is all relaxed and cool out and just notice the natural mind. And he's like, no, I see there it says jhana. I want jhana. I want this, these deep states of concentration, just reading from the text. And he talked about this process over and over again of getting concentrated on the breath and really feeling like he was getting somewhere and crashing. Picking himself up and thinking just didn't try hard enough, you know, try harder this time, over and over again until he realized it was fruitless to keep trying in that way. And what he had to do is shift his relationship to the breath to actually enjoy the breath. And he developed this whole practice or perception of the breath he teaches and talks about called the beautiful breath. And that was the doorway for him to deepening into Uh, states of jhana. And so he'll talk about or encourage people to reflect on the beautiful qualities of the breath. And we've told some stories about this, you know, if someone was holding your head down in a, a barrel of water, that next breath, is that boring? No, you know. If you've ever really suffered from a cold or flu or allergy, and then the breath clears. Sometimes I'll just take a breath, especially meditating, and appreciate that I'm not stuffed up, that the breath is clear, even though I haven't been sick for a long time. I just have that sense of how beautiful it is to have a clear and unimpeded breath as best we can. So all of these are helpful. The other thing that was a revelation for me in doing concentration practice was, again, the shifting of perceptions or using uh, skillful means Um, in vipassana, insight practice, you've probably heard many times, just be with the bare experience. Be as simple as possible. Don't bring concepts to the practice. What's the felt direct experience? And that everything's impermanent. Let it go, let it go, let it go. Not self, not self. This is how we get trained, and it's appropriate, powerful training. In concentration practice, because we're actually having an intention that we're developing, a a sense of cultivation towards a certain type of experience, we can actually use these skillful means, these upaya, to support us. And I always remember when my teacher first said, oh, is, is doing that working? Great, do more of that. And I'm like, what do you mean? Usually you say, let it go, don't get attached, drop it, you know, it's going to pass, it's impermanent. No, in concentration, again, as a skillful means, we can use imagery or um, felt sense, reflections, memories. I've talked to a few people about working with the breath, especially when other things are happening, like imagining or remembering being on a warm tropical ocean that's just got a little heaving going on. It's not crashing waves or anything, and you're just lying there floating in the warm, salty water, but there's this movement, expansion and contraction. These kind of images can help us open to lean, I don't want to say lean into, no, open to, inhabit, embody this felt sense of breath, the sense of silk on your skin, that the breath is like that. 
any beautiful imagery of leaves waving in the wind, the grasses. If you've been to Spirit Rock at that certain time of year when the heavy seed heads of the grasses weigh them down, they're still a little green and they ripple in the wind. You know, it's just this orchestra of movement on the hillside. Waves in the ocean. Again, I love the ocean. I love the sea. When it's calm, but there's that shh over the sand as the wave comes in. It's, it's only a few inches high, if anything, and then shh goes out. All of this, again, skillful means to invite us in to the breath. Even counting, noting, these are all skillful means that we can use to help us get more connected to the breath, appreciate the breath, love the breath. So the technical term is upaya, skillful means, colloquial term, training wheels. And we all needed them, right? When we began riding a bike, you don't put a a, a three-year-old onto a 20-speed racing bike and send them onto the Tour de France. No, you're training wheels up and down the sidewalk. But like your training wheels, at some point, you want to take them off. We're always inclining to simplicity, always inclining to um, letting go. So we use our upaya, our skillful means, use them skillfully, know when we need them and when we can put them down and start to just rest in the breath. And I also think it's helpful, even though we've talked about exploring the breath and breath in different parts of the body, I love the whole body breathing, but we want to have a place that's our go-to place. And that can be the whole body, but not always, oh, it's working here, but now it's not, and I feel it now, now I'm feeling it kind of over my right side above the third rib, and is it the fourth rib, or no, now now it's at the nostrils, no, no, not the nostrils, no. That's not so helpful. You want to have your go-to place. So I always start with a full awareness of the body, sitting, relaxing, full awareness of the breath, moving. And as we keep saying, let the breath come to you. Simplify, steady. And if you find you're getting tight, fine, open up again. But really to cultivate that place, it's like a magnetic attraction, this sense of resting in the experience of the breath. Because wherever you choose to notice the breath, sooner or later, it will not work, whatever your definition of that is. It will become imperceptible. It will become so refined, you might not even be able to know you're breathing. But you are, because you're still here. We know you're breathing. So I've been talking to people about this today, sometimes to ask the question or say, I know I'm breathing, How do I know I'm breathing? Can I drop down to another more subtle connection with the breath, even as it's it's in this seemingly imperceptible state? And as we do that, the mind lets go to another deeper, more refined level. You can't force any of this that I'm talking about. Again, it has to be from this place of relaxation, of trust, of stillness and surrender. Again, the trying to get it, trying to make it more still, no, doesn't work. It really has to be just a preferring of the simplicity to the complexity.
Say that again and again. And this shift of perception around the breath from being, you know, this mundane object, ho, hum, oh, another breath, to falling in love with the breath. As Ajahn Brahm would say, beautiful breath. I I recently read this research, uh, it was a journalist commenting on some research into happiness and the connection to beauty. So it's bringing together our themes here. And it says, the journalist said, the usual markers of happiness are colloquially known as the big seven. I hadn't heard this before, but this is supposedly what makes you happy. Wealth. But uh, they say, especially as compared to others, so it's not like you have to have a huge amount, but just I guess more than the other people as well, especially as compared to those around you. Family relationships, career, friends, health, freedom, and personal values. It's a reasonable list. But according to this study, the Goldberg study, however, what makes people happiest isn't in this list. Instead, happiness is most easily attained by living in an aesthetically beautiful place. The things that people are constantly surrounded by, lovely architecture, history, green spaces, cobblestone streets, had the greatest effect on their happiness. The cumulative positive effects of daily beauty worked subtly but strongly. There's a reason why most meditation centers are beautiful. They're simple, but they're beautiful. The buildings, but the land because it speaks to us, it opens us up to something. So imagine if we related to the breath as being beautiful, and it was with us all day long. Would that conduce to our happiness? So they say. It goes on to say, it seems that part of humans' appreciation of beauty is because it is able to conjure the feelings we tend to associate with happiness. Calmness, a connection to history or the divine, wealth, you know, well, that's there, time for reflection and appreciation, and perhaps surprisingly, hope. And when they say hope, I, I, I more think of faith in the sense we use it as something we're confident in. We, we, ha- we have confidence in ourselves to open, deepen. And so all of this is pointing to why we love nature, why we love majestic open spaces like the meadows of Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon or the mountains or the oceans. They open us to something. They expire us something. Or even the man-made, human-made objects of cathedrals and great towns and buildings. I always remember um, Ajahn Sumedho, who's a very inspiring teacher for me and I know for Philip, um, American monk who's I don't, you can't quite retire as a monk, but he certainly retired from his administrative duties, of which he was a great servant of for countless years and really uh, was instrumental in uh, landing the Dharma in the West, in, in, a, in England and in America. But as he's got more free time, he likes to go on these trips and he chooses very unusual places. And he was here once talking about the next place he wanted to go and it was the Arctic, like up above, um, what's it called? The Arctic Circle, sorry. High up there. Um, And, you know, most people want to go somewhere to see something, right? Maybe lots of things, lots of different things. He wanted to go somewhere where you could see nothing. 
He said, I want to go somewhere where it's white in all directions, up and down, before, behind. That's what he, after all those decades of practice, that's what he wanted to see. I love that. It's like he wanted to see something that represented the radiant mind, the mind that's unencumbered, the transparent, luminous mind. And he did that, and he loved it. And he just wandered off, you know, and he came back, obviously, but so far enough away that he could just stand there and be in that whiteness. This is pointed to in one of the um, lists of practices we can do for concentration in that book, the Vasudhimaga. It's called Kasina Practice. And uh, in those practices, you take... um, an elemental aspect of experience. It could be one of the four elements, like you do it on the wind or fire, um, uh, the earth. You can take colors, and like blue or white or yellow, and you make a disc or you take material, you can take flowers, and you make, you make a circle, and that's your absorption object. And so I was always fascinated by this as I would read these lists. In one of my periods of concentration, I was doing more self-retreat at the Forest Refuge, so I'd, I'd done some concentration. I thought, I'll try some casino practice. But no one I knew had done it, so I just had to read the text, or I got a little third-hand, you know, a pe- one of our little note paper, like a few words of what perhaps to do wasn't that helpful. So I just tried to do it from the text. So I wanted to choose blue. I was told blue was one of the easier or the doorways to this. So I got one of those blue zafus. You know, there's those kind of powdery blue zafus. There's a lot of them around. And I sat that in front of me. And that was my, my casino, my blue casino. So you just sit there and the idea is you let it imprint. You just stare at it until you can close your eyes and completely fill your mind with that color. It didn't work. <laughs> Powdery blue old Zafu did not. And then I remembered Subasanya, beautiful perception. This was not going to sweeten the mind enough to have it fall into absorption. So I thought, what's the most beautiful blue that I know? And so again, I thought of water of the water of a, a, a deep swimming pool, you know, when it, it has those little ripples and you see it on the side, or the water of a tropical sea. So that's what I rested my mind on. And I can't say that it worked in the sense, you know, that I got these amazing states of absorption, but I saw the power, the, the, the sort of the joy or the gladness that came from that, the, the sense of immersing in that was, again, really quite powerful. So these... Um, this openness to joy, to beauty, to contentment, to well-being. I'm talking about this all to point to. These are necessary for us, Um, not kind of uh, distractions, but used skillfully, really allow the mind to deepen. And so in the text, the Buddha and his disciples would often talk about the joy and the beauty they received from nature and how inspiring and uplifting that was as a wholesome pleasure. They turned away from sensual pleasure through their taking of all of the 227 precepts that they would take and follow. But this wholesome pleasure, the joy of nature, they were able to delight in. 
And so there's many verses you can find where they talk about nature and how it inspires them. There's a whole a compilation of texts, the Teragata by the elder monks, the Terigata by the elder nuns are filled with um, images of nature. I like this one. It's from Mahakasapa, who was considered one of the fathers of the Sangha, senior disciple of the Buddha, but he was very stern, very severe, um, but someone asked him once wh- why he didn't live in a comfortable monastery because he lived in a cave. And I've actually visited Mahakasapa's cave above Rajgir on pilgrimage. And, you know, you think of cave and you kind of have an idea like the Flintstones or something. This was like about three foot high and five foot deep. It was not looking comfortable. But anyway, when he was asked why he didn't live in a comfortable monastery, Mahakasapa said, like towering peaks of dark blue clouds, like splendid edifices are these rocks where the birds' sweet voices fill the air. These rocky heights delight my heart. And just that sense, I mean, it was really renunciate practice and that sense of joy that he had from the beauty around him. So nature is a great teacher for us because we know we can't own or control nature, right? But our openness, our appreciation, our capacity to um, be, to learn from is, is, is just beautiful. Um, and these kind of descriptions of nature imagery uh, allied with concentration, again, are all through the text, and particularly in the descriptions of the jhanas, the fir- especially the fir- first four jhanas, the form jhanas. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya, uh, one of the, the um, numbered numerical discourses, and it's a list of five, so it's in the fives. And it's talking about a practitioner using the term bhikkhu, um, and bhikkhu can refer to anyone who's a serious practitioner. Here, secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a bhikkhu enters and dwells in the first jhana, which consists of rapture and pleasure, born of seclusion, accompanied by thought and examination. That's vitaka and vichara. She makes the rapture and happiness, born of seclusion, drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body, so there is no part of her body that is not pervaded by the rapture and happiness born of seclusion. Just as a skillful bathman might heap bath powder in a metal basin and sprinkling it gradually with water would knead it. You could think of dough in this. They, They have some kind of soap that they make this way. Would knead it until the moisture wets the ball of bath powder, soaks it, and pervades it inside and out. Yet the ball itself does not ooze. So too the bhikkhu makes rapture and happiness born of seclusion, drenched, steep, and fill, and pervade this body so no part is left out. This is the first development of concentration. Again, with the subsiding of thought and examination, a bhikkhu enters and dwells in the second jhana, which has internal placidity and unification of mind and consists of rapture and pleasure born of concentration without thought and examination. He makes the rapture and happiness born of concentration drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body, 
I'll cut. Just as there might be a lake whose waters welled up from below, with no inflow from the east, the west, the north, or the south, and the lake would not be replenished by showers of rain, but by the cool fount of water welling up, um, so that no part of the lake is not pervaded by cool water, so too the bhikkhu makes the rapture stamp, drench, steep, fill, and pervade the body. And again, with the fading away of rapture, the bhikkhu dwells equanimous, mindful, experiences pleasure in the whole body, just as if a pond of blue or red or white lotuses, some lotuses that are born and grow in water, might thrive immersed in the water without rising up out of it. The cool water would drench, steep, fill, and pervade them to their tips and their roots so that there was no part of the lotuses that would not be pervaded by cool water. So too, we drench, steep, and pervade the body. And then for the fourth jhana, we sit pervading this body with a pure, bright mind, so there is no part of the body that is not pervaded by a pure, bright mind. Just as though someone was sitting covered from head down with a white cloth, so there was no part of the whole body that was not pervaded by the white cloth. So too the bhikkhu sits pervading this body with a pure, bright mind, so there was no part of the body that was not drenched, steeped, and pervaded by this pure, bright mind. So again, these images that speak to almost a a sensual nature of this experience of the concentrated mind. And and the the Buddha used these images, as he said, inviting, onward leading, um, available to the wise. This is what's possible. And so, um, as we've said, uh, concentration and the role of concentration is central in the Buddha's teachings, and that's partly why I, I wanted to hand out this list. I'm not going to refer to all of it. There's a lot in it. But just to see all of the central lists and how concentration is placed there and what precedes and follows concentration. This is really instructive for us. What we often find is some aspect of well-being, what we call the proximate causes for concentration. So um, in the seven factors of awakening, it's rapture and tranquility. In the jhanic factors, it's, it's rapture and happiness. In the rewards of virtue, it's rap- joy, rapture, tranquility, happiness. In transcendent dependent origination, it's again faith, joy, rapture, tranquility, happiness, concentration. In the Anapanasati Sutta, the treatise on uh, Um, refining this breath uh, contemplation. Um, We start with calming the bodily, tranquilizing the mental formations and the bodily formations, gladdening the mind and concentrating the mind. So just to get a sense, what are the supportive proximate causes for concentration? In one of the the, um, texts, the the Buddha says, when the practitioner knows the five hindrances are absent within her, gladness arises, and being glad, rapture arises. Because of rapture, her body becomes tranquil. With her body tranquilized, she feels happiness, and with happiness, her mind becomes concentrated, and then deepens onto jhana. So, 
This is instructive for us. Even though effort, vayama, and energy virya, you can find them on these lists, I don't think they're ever immediately before concentration, samadhi. And striving, judging, and comparing certainly are not. So really, you know, this is the point of seeing these lists. I wanted you also just to have the terminology. Um, This is what the progression of the path of practice is about. It's really about this sweetening of the mind. Bhikkhu Analeo, the great Buddhist scholar, said something like, the whole of the progressive path of Buddhist practice, the path of Buddhist practice could be seen as a progressive refinement of joy. So, this is the direction this practice goes in. These are the qualities that we can actually cultivate and find blessing and benefit from. Again, to do that is no on switch. We can't just decide, great, that sounds good, just get happy, you know? What is it? Don't worry, be happy. What's the feral song? Is that what he says? Oh, don't worry, be happy. I thought it was something else. Anyway, the happy song. You know that that's a good. You know that maybe that's what does it for you. You just think of him and his hat, and you get happy. Um, but for us, it needs some supports. I've talked about the shifting of perception, so helpful. We've also talked about what we call guarding the sense doors. This is not a rigid shutting out of what's out there, but really seeing how easily we're drawn out, particularly through the eye door, but it can happen through ears or the other senses as well, um, into judging, fixing, and comparing. Because, you know, what are they doing? Better, worse than? I should be, I'm not. You know, they are. So we actually just have this sense of settledness. Um, Many people often wear hats doing this practice. If you see anyone with a big hat on, it's like they're just having that sense, as uh, Kamala was talking about, just the eyes gently downcast. It doesn't have to be rigid. It doesn't have to be cold or unfeeling. It's actually a great support for practice. And as I've said, we have to start preferring stillness to movement, Simplicity to complexity. Silence to stories. We've given you the helpful practice of just not now. Our stories are so compelling, right? It's why we fed them all these years. But to really see we have more choice than we think. If we give the mind something satisfying enough to do. You know, if we just say, we get the whip out and, you know, sit here and pay attention to this, of course it's just going to run away. But this invitation, this sense of landing, of coming home almost, we can really find a refuge in the simplicity of the breath. So the not now is also very gentle. Not now is also a skillful means. I've often heard Philip say something like, don't be disturbed by the disturbances. Things happen, of course. Body gives us challenges, the mind goes off on its dance. But we start to see we have more choice than we actually give ourselves credit for. Or 
another way of looking at it, we can find the breath within that experience. And that's one of the ways I like to do this. And again, it's that big ocean imagery. So something's happening, a memory, a mood, a reaction. Can I find the breath, not push that away and go to the breath, reject that and latch onto the breath. Can I find the breath within that? Can I breathe with that? with that bodily sensation, with that mental construct. So it's breath and, not breath instead of. And then we move into that background foreground where, again, as we have that sense of breathing with that, often there's a calming that comes or a steadying and and whatever the agitation is perhaps can let go a little. And this is our flow, this is our process, over and over again. Because we're not trying to create perfect conditions. I don't think there is such a thing as the perfect conditions, unless they're these conditions right now. Because these are the ones we have. I love that Pat keeps saying, the conditions are good, as in good enough. And that's all we need. You know, I can't tell you how many notes we get about, you know, if only you did more of this and less of that and opened that and shut that and turned this down and turned that up. Because people are always looking. They're always anonymous and signed with meta, you know. (laughs) You really... You know who I'm talking about, right? (laughs) Conditions are good enough. And that's, again, that's a shift in perception. That's a sh- the food is good enough. The food is actually great, but, you know, it's not always what we want to eat. It's good enough to support the body. The bed is good enough. Everything, you know, to have that sense. If we look to create per- perfect conditions, that's an endless quest and one of a lot of dissatisfaction. This is from Ajahn Chah, who's the teacher of Ajahn Sumedho. When I was younger, I looked for peace in the wrong way. I'd sit to practice samadhi and my mind wouldn't settle down. It ran around wildly no matter how I tried to bring it back. It wouldn't return. If it did come back, it wouldn't stay. So there's Ajahn Chah. I don't know how long into his practice, but very, very sincere. What to do? Should I stop breathing? I used to try that. I'd hold my breath to try and force my mind to stop moving, but it would still go. I'd hold the breath longer, but the only thing that would come of holding the breath longer and longer was that I would eventually die. It was similar when I felt my meditation was disturbed by sounds. I filled my ears with wax. I stuffed them tight so that I couldn't hear anything. It seemed like a good thing. No more outside sounds to bother me. But then I started thinking about it. If not hearing or seeing anything is part of being awakened, then many people would already be enlightened. That's not it. It's not about hearing or not hearing, seeing or not seeing, feeling or not feeling. It's about being in our experience in a sustained and steady way and finding the stillness in that experience, finding the steadiness in that moving, changing, shifting field that is our experience. And so we cultivate Stillness, not in rigidity, not like, you know, of a ruler or, you know, something that's rigid, but as in this simplicity. And we start to see that the stillness comes 
not so much in the object, because whatever conditioned object we put our attention on, it's going to change. That's its nature, three characteristics. What starts to steady is the attention itself, the capacity of the mind to stay with experience. And that's another shift in practice that really allows some deepening to happen. Breath coming and going, but the steadiness of the attention. We have to be attentive to disturbances in the field, and by disturbance, stress, the places the mind is getting stuck, and see, can we let go, the not now? This is also so helpful. But always through relaxation and letting go, not throwing away, not, you know, rejection, but so much, I see for myself so much of this practice is literally relaxing the body. If, if the mind is agitated, the body responds. You relax the body, the mind will relax a little bit. Relax it a little more, the mind will relax a little more. But at, at times in our practice, this gets very subtle. Um, I too practice with pa'oxayada that Pat mentioned the other night, not nearly as extensively or as deeply as him, but enough to get a taste of his teachings. He's quite an expire, inspiring teacher. And I was at one of those retreats where, you know, there were many experienced practitioners, many teachers uh, sitting that retreat. To pa'ok, we were all beginners. And it was humbling to really recognize, yes, in that practice, a beginner. But it was a breath practice that I was quite used to, and I'd even, I think, by that point started teaching it, so I'd give talks like this about relaxation and not over-efforting and simplicity and sukha, all of those things. And my practice deepened enough so some of the signs of concentration were starting to happen, and the little, you know, bell can't go off, but, oh, good, now, you know, what next? Or, you know, I'm getting, you know, the landing in that... But it didn't deepen. It didn't deepen. And until one day, you know, it's like a lightning bolt at times. And in retrospect, how did I not see this? I saw that I was just being with the breath in order to get concentrated. Anyone relate? In order to get concentrated. And not only in order to get concentrated, to have something to say in my daily interview with Park Sayadaw, where his only question was, how long were you with the breath and what happened? He didn't care about your parents or your life history. How long? And that was, when I saw that, I saw all of the, the tension. It was so subtle. It was a, like a brittleness around the breath because I had this agenda. I wasn't just being with the breath in this simple way that I've been talking about. And once I saw it, I saw all the tension, this leaning forward, this agenda that I created that a moment before I hadn't seen. Once I saw it, it was obvious. I actually had to like break my practice, go for a long walk, start again with whole body breathing, and completely reorient to deepening in the breath, 
because doing it that way wasn't going to work. It was really humbling. And speaking to many other practitioners after that, one other teacher said he realized later, yep, I just practiced a month of striving. In the moment, he would have thought, like me, he was just being diligent and attentive. But it's not until we step back a little that we see what we're doing. So this simplicity of practice, of keeping the mind in a contented place, is so important. One of my concentration teachers was so helpful for me in this. She said, just sit for as long as your mind is happy being with the breath. As soon as you get a little bit distracted, break the meditation. And it could be simply just opening my eyes, moving a little, you know, just a slight shift in posture. Or, you know, again, I was practicing at the forest refuge. I could just get up and do something else. But then a few minutes, come back and start again. The other thing she told me is every now and then just go sit in a comfy chair and look out the window. I love that instruction. Not to sit and cogitate, think, ruminate, let the mind be quiet, but just really relaxed, soft eyes, soft gaze. This was kind of the turning point, these experiences where I realized it was okay to enjoy practice. I always thought of it as medicine. There's something, you know, take it, it's good for you. And it had that sense of, you know, patience that Kamala was talking about last night was like, you know, unpleasant thing I had to endure to get something I wanted. And to actually find that pleasure in practice itself. And I realize as I'm saying this, it may seem far away for you. It certainly was and still can be for me. It's not like I can just, oh, great, let's enjoy this now. The body aches, the mind's restless, challenges in life. Yes, of course. We have to have a huge amount of compassion and kindness for ourselves wherever we are. But to just hold this possibility to give ourselves permission, I think is the more important thing. And to have these possibilities, ways of inclining the mind and heart, I just think are so helpful. So here's Tanasaru Bhikkhu, who is again another um, monastic who teaches breath, cons- breath practice, whole body breathing to deepen into jhana. So a lot of focus on the breath. He says, how do you use pleasure? Focus on the breath right now and see how it feels. Then experiment with the breath to see how the way you breathe can bre- produce either pleasure or pain. It may be subtle, the difference between the two, but it's there. We've learned to desensitize ourselves to this aspect of our awareness, so it's going to take a while to resensitize ourselves, to begin seeing the patterns. This is why we practice. Keep coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath. Try to get more sensitivity to this area of your awareness, more skilled at learning how to maximize the potential for pleasure right here and now, simply by the way you breathe. Not only producing pleasure, but also maintaining it. After all, the feelings of pleasure and rapture are part of the path. They're tucked in the Noble Eightfold Path under right concentration. And as part of the path, they have to be developed and maintained. As the Buddha said, this pleasure is blameless. Simply in our perception, relationship to the breath. Again, can't force control, make this happen. I don't want anything that I've said tonight make you feel that you're not doing it right or you should be doing more. 
you have to be right where you are, but in that place can we relax and soften, open and allow a sense of kindness and well-being. Because this is the direction that this practice leads. I uh, often have to review applications for different programs and retreats, and this is one that I read a while ago that really touched me from someone who'd been doing breath meditation for concentration. This person said, I can feel myself becoming a happier, more mindful, kinder, and more generous person as I continue to practice. I find I can fall back into a very enlivened, radiating, happy, empty place that I first discovered on retreat, and I am continually using it as a support to stay mindful and generous while dealing with the challenges of my day-to-day life. In addition to my sitting practice, I also have a practice of regular brisk, brisk, mindful walking to help me stay connected to the sensations in the body. I feel from the inside that I am rewiring my neural networks through the concentration. The impact of the whole body breathing in the long retreats has been indescribable. Access to an ongoing resource of happiness that I am using to heal and reshape my neurotic habits and patterns. As I continue to connect to that place inside me in my daily life, it supports me in becoming more skillful in my actions and becoming a better more generous and compassionate human being. This is the direction this practice heads, and all of us are on the path to that kind of happiness and well-being. So let's let the word settle into silence. So thank you for your attention. It's about half an hour for walking meditation. It's a really sweet time of the day. Perhaps still a little bit of energy. It's a relatively short time to walk or get a cup of tea or stretch. Let the cool night air steep, drench, and pervade every aspect of your being, enliven you a little bit, and bring you back into the hall at 9 o'clock for... Last sit with chanting, join our voices in pervading the all-encompassing world with uh, beautiful qualities of heart and mind of the Brahma Viharas. Mm -hmm.